Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hi folks, how are you doing? Welcome to Luke's English Podcast. Uh, this episode uh, is all about politicians avoiding questions. And um, today we're going to look at the way politicians deal with tough and challenging questions from TV and radio interviewers. We'll listen to some examples of politicians avoiding questions in interviews and examine some of the ways that they use language to get themselves out of their tight situations while also promoting ideas through interviews. I'm not sure what you think about politics. I don't talk about it a lot on Luke's English Podcast. I did an episode a couple of years ago called Number 82, Votings, Elections and Government, in which I talk about the political system and various bits of vocabulary related to politics, voting and elections. Now, a lot of people find politics to be quite boring, and I used to think that too, but more and more perhaps because I'm finally growing up, I think that politics is fascinating and really important. I'm particularly keen on watching debates between politicians and watching the way in which politicians cleverly deal with challenging questions in interviews. It's fascinating to watch them very skillfully squirm their way out of tight situations or use all manner of linguistic and rhetorical skills to persuade people live on television. British journalists tend to interview politicians in a slightly aggressive manner or challenging manner. Um, Politicians are getting very, very good at avoiding questions. Um, And this is exactly what I'm particularly interested in studying in this episode of the podcast. How do politicians avoid questions? Let's have a listen and find out. Now, um, I wonder about politicians in your countries. Uh, when you see politicians being interviewed on television, are they very sort of slippery? Do they manage to avoid answering difficult questions? What approaches do they use to do that? Um, what, how do they present themselves? Do they present themselves as just ordinary people? Um, and I wonder about the interviewing style as well in your countries. As I just mentioned, here in the UK, uh, people tend to... Um, Uh, uh, interviewers on TV, particularly on BBC programmes like Newsnight or the Today programme on BBC Radio 4, they tend to give their subjects rather a hard time and they can be rather aggressive and direct in their interviewing style rather than, for example, the more like light form of interviewing that you get in entertainment programmes and chat shows where the interviewer just sort of allows the guest to tell stories and say whatever they want to say. In these kinds of political interviews, they tend to be very tough and uncompromising and a bit strict in terms of the answers that they expect the uh, the politicians to respond with. Um, we're going to listen to a few clips in this episode, some clips of um, like real politicians responding to questions in interviews. But we're going to start with a clip from um, the satirical comedy show The Day to Day. 
Um, the day-to-day was on TV back in the 1990s, and um, it was on the BBC. It was actually broadcast at exactly the same time as the 9 o'clock news. So while the news was on on BBC One, they put the day-to-day on BBC Two at the same time, and it was a, a very, very clever parody of news. In fact, many people saw the day-to-day, and they thought it was the real news programme, because that's how clever and how close to being, you know, like the real news that it, it was. So the, pro- the programme basically makes fun of the news. It takes the mickey out of the way that newsreaders speak and their interview style. Um, in this clip, we hear an interview with a politician who is facing allegations of ministerial... Uh, he's facing allegations of ministerial misconduct, which basically means that he's being accused of lying in front of the House of Commons about a deal, Okay. The interviewer um, is interviewing the the politician outside the Houses of Parliament, and the interviewer is not aggressive or challenging enough. And in the end, he just lets the politician get away with lying to the House of Commons. Basically, the interviewer is too nice in this particular sketch. Then the newsreader in the studio takes over. He has a go at the interviewer. He gets angry with the interviewer for not asking challenging or tough questions. I think this is really funny. So let's have a listen, and then we'll consider the ways that politicians deal with tough interviews on TV. Let's have a listen to this clip from the day-to-day. Here we go. It's just been announced... Yeah, thanks. It's just been announced there's to be a special inquiry into the government's handling of the Froome shipping deal, which flew to pieces last month amid accusations of gross ministerial misconduct. Our economics correspondent, Peter O'Hanrahan, is with the Minister for Ships, Michael Crane. He's just prized him out of an emergency meeting. I'm with the Minister for Ships, Michael That's what Crane. That's everything MP. I've just said comes spewing straight back out of his stupid slab of a face. Mr Crane, choppy waters for the government. Not at all, Peter. Uh, this procedure was entirely proper, and I think the inquiry will prove that the government's handling of this matter was entirely proper. So the government's ship back on course? Absolutely. Back to you, Chris. Peter, what the hell was that? This man's made a big-scale cock-up here. You let him get away with it. Now let me speak to him. Put your earpiece next to his head and stand still. Now, Minister, there's reason to believe that you lied to the House. How do you answer that? Well, that is a very serious and unfounded allegation, and I'll be making a statement to the House based on the preliminary inquiry next week. A week is a long time in politics. Rab Butler. Shut up, Peter. Now, Minister, did you or did you not lie to the House? I will be making a full statement to the House next week. It's a simple question, yes or no. Did you or did you not lie? I, um... As the Minister for Ships sprawls on the pin, it's back to you, Chris. No, it isn't, Peter. He's about to answer the question. He's about to admit to lying to the House. You've let him get away again. Where's he gone? Over there. Well, get him back. He's in a cab. Peter, you've lost the news! What are you going to say? Sorry. Look like you mean it. Look down at the ground and say sorry. I'm sorry. Peter, next time you cross the road, don't bother looking. Sorry. Okay, that was the day-to-day. Peter, you've lost the news. And uh, that's just a comedy clip. But in terms of real situations, uh, we're now going to listen to an example of what I'm talking about. Here, the interviewer wants uh, the politician to admit that he was wrong about the euro. Clearly, the politician doesn't want to admit that he was wrong. Um, And so he pushes another line, which is that the UK at the moment is not willing to be part of the euro. 
By the euro, we're talking about the European single currency. Listen to the way the interviewer asks about the mistake over the euro and how the politician attempts to avoid the question and how the interviewer has to quite aggressively force him to deal with the euro problem. So in summary, the politician is the energy secretary, Chris Hewn, who is a member of the Liberal Liberal Party, who are in coalition government with the Conservatives. So he's a government um, secretary. And um, the issue is that he said sometime before that the euro was going to be a big success and that the UK is missing out, which contradicts what um, the government is now saying, which is that um, that Britain is, is better off not being in the euro. So the politician doesn't want to admit that he's wrong, and instead he wants to push the idea that the UK is not willing to be part of the euro at the moment. So often this is what politicians do. They duck the question, or they they don't answer the question, and instead they use it as an opportunity to push another line that they've prepared. The message that they want to give to the public is the one that they give. So they just basically completely avoid the question and just say something else instead. Let's have a little listen to that interview now. This is from the BBC from um, a couple of years ago. Joining us now from the Liberal Democrat conference in Birmingham is the Energy Secretary, Chris Hewn. On this question of the euro, uh, Chris Hewn, uh, do you still subscribe to the view uh, that you once held that the euro is living up to the highest expectations of the economists who advocated it and Britain is missing out? Clearly not, Jeremy, but one thing that I think is very clear is that if you are like Greece, a country that has falsified your national accounts, in this case in order to get into the euro area, uh, even if you were outside the euro area, there would be a real day of reckoning. And all that would happen if the Greeks had their own currency is that they would be facing a Latin American style hyperinflation with a massive devaluation. And that's not an easy way out either. So, so the reality uh, is that the problems right. that are besetting we Greece shouldn't have joined it would have been a huge which, mistake. Ones which predated it? the euro area. It would have been a huge mistake to, for us to have joined the euro, wouldn't it? I, I think it was a huge mistake for the Greeks to join, knowing as they did. I, I'm not talking about the Greeks, I'm asking. Accounts were Sure. I'm asking whether it would have been a mistake for us to join. And clearly it would, wouldn't it? Clearly, if you look at the number of countries that have joined, there is a commitment uh, to making the euro work, which I think we would underestimate at our peril. So you don't think it would have been a mistake? Right the way through European Union history, from the 1950s onwards, British people have consistently underestimated the extent of the political will on the European mainland to actually get these sort of problems together. Now, the yes or no, should we have joined the, the euro of, as the you advocated? Of, yes or no? The question of joining the euro is clearly not no. one for the UK. But, uh, no. We are out of the euro and that issue is settled. Right. But all I'm saying to you no, is I'm, that I'm, if we well, start I'm trying to get a straight answer to whether you think it would have been a good thing to join or not. And clearly you, you don't. You've got a very, you've got a very straight answer, which is that we have no, consistently underestimated what goes on in the Eurozone in terms of the That's political That's the answer to another to question. That wasn't the one I asked. The question I asked you was whether it, you still it, think it, it would have been a good it, thing to have joined the Euro. Yes or no? Frankly, the, the issue has not been a live one in British politics for a long time. If we had joined the Euro, it might have been a very different right. beast. The Can key I check? issue today is whether or not Greece should have joined the Euro, and the answer to that is clearly no. Let and me try Greek something else on you. provided false figures to the European... Fly me. 
just that um, ability to just keep on going. Well, the question really here today is one that the government has been pushing for a number of months now, which is the clearly the issue that uh, the, 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 the euro has been um, uh, considered to be a success for many of the initial uh, founding nations of the European Union. But of course, the question really here is whether or not Greece should have benefited at all um, from joining the European single currency. And the question, the, the response even that we should be giving here is a clear matter of fact no oh amazing that, that they can just keep on going i love the fact that the interviewer uh gives that line of just like yes or no which is what they always do um in fact if, if we go back to the sketch we listened to just before this um they do that in this sketch as well quick yes or no answer not lie Grab butler. Shut up, Peter. Now, Minister, did you or did you not lie to the House? I will be making a full statement to the House next It's week. a simple question, yes or no. Did you or did you not lie? I, um... There you go. Did you or did you not lie? Now, we're going to have another one now, because I'm enjoying this. And, um, so, by the way, the interviewer that you're hearing, um, the real interviewer, is called Jeremy Paxman, who is kind of a legend, really. Um, he used to present a show called Newsnight, which was a sort of, um, uh, it was on like 10 o'clock or 10.30 in the evening. And it was basically a chance to kind of go deeper into the news stories of the day. And Jeremy Paxson is famous for being very uncompromising and tough in his interviews with politicians. And he's very good at it too. Let's listen to Jeremy Paxman asking um, another um, politician about should the UK government remove Colonel Gaddafi or not. Minister Alistair Burt is in our Westminster studio. Now, um, Alistair Burt, uh, President Obama said tonight that uh, Colonel Gaddafi needs to go. That's the American position. Does he need to go as far as the British are concerned? Well, politically, we've also made it very clear that we don't see a future for a Gaddafi regime running Libya. That's not the military objective behind the resolution, which is to protect the Libyan people and enforce the no-fly zone. But we've been as clear as the Americans that the Gaddafi regime has run its course. So, as far as you understand the UN resolution, it does not entitle those involved to target Gaddafi. Um, what the UN resolution entitles the international uh, group to do is to protect civilians and to act uh, in, in accordance with the need to do so or to establish the no-fly zone. It doesn't endorse regime change, as the Prime Minister made very clear. Uh, but in I'm not asking you about regime change. I'm asking you about whether, in being entitled to use all necessary means to attack command and control mechanisms, you're allowed to attack the controlling commander. Well, I think the answer to that is, firstly, it's an operational matter what's targeted, but any operation that oh. takes place will be fully in accordance with the UN resolution, which is to protect civilians or to take action that will um, establish a no-fly zone. That's so, the operational parameter. So, uh, do I understand you to say that you believe that it does entitle you to target Colonel Gaddafi? I believe it. what entitles the government to do in, in accordance with the resolution and acting with our, our partners so, is to take the steps that will protect can, can civilians just, can, or can, establish I'm sorry, no I, it's a pretty straightforward question. I'm sorry to be persistent I'm about it. I'm sorry to be persistent in my answer. The well, answer is any operational activity will be in question. accordance with the resolution. Right, so the answer is yes or no? The answer is any operational action will be in accordance with the resolution to but protect civilians. You see, the, the, the General Richards can say unequivocally, no, it doesn't entitle us to do that. 
Well, he, he was not answering, I suspect, the question you've asked me. The question you've asked me is, what is the operational parameters that the, the, no. the, the international group under the United Nations Resolution are operating under? And I'm saying it's to do no. two things. Well, let me it's ask to you protect civilians. Uh, we, know what the, we know what the resolution says. Let me ask you, unambiguously, I'm obviously not being clear. Does it entitle us to target Colonel Gaddafi? It entitles us to do what is necessary to protect civilians or to establish a no-fly zone. So I'm sorry you can't accept the answer, but it's as clear as that. Oh my goodness. Unbelievable, isn't it? So let's look at some ways that politicians manage to avoid questions. Okay, so first of all, usually they have a pre-planned message or a line which they've prepared carefully before going into the interview. And often this is in the form of sound bites, like snappy, quotable phrases which can be used in newspapers. Here's an example of the opposition leader in the UK, Ed Miliband, um, doing exactly that. He's clearly prepared um, certain sound bites, like he urges... Uh, the, everyone to put aside the rhetoric and get around the negotiating table to sort this out. Well, let's move so, on. So, so, so let me just Do you the accept? Point. I urge both sides to put aside the rhetoric, get around the negotiating table, and stop it happening again. After today's disruption, get around the negotiating table, put aside the rhetoric, and sort the problem out. I urge both sides to get around the negotiating table, put aside the rhetoric, and stop this kind of thing happening again. It's a All right. I urge both sides to put aside the rhetoric, get around the negotiating table, and stop this happening again. I think that's probably his prepared line. Probably not the answer to the question that the interviewer asked him. Um, so, yes, they, they basically have pre-prepared sound bites, which they are basically using the interviewer as a platform for. So their aim is to present this line, despite the questions that they will be asked. As long as they're talking on the same topic, and they look presentable, reasonable and professional, often we just don't notice that they're not even responding to the question. Social conventions of politeness and communication make it hard for the interviewer to break this down. If the politician doesn't really answer the question, it's hard for the interviewer to A, identify that it's even happened, B, respond to it quickly, and C, find the right questions that will force the politician to really answer the question. Smooth interviews break down when an interviewer is tough, aggressive, and sceptical. So the interviewer has to make an aggressive line in order to fight against the slick tactics of the politician. It's very hard for these interviewers because they have to go against instinctive social conventions in order to break the politician's spell. If the, in if the interviewer is too aggressive or too emotional, the interviewee wins because he comes out of it better. He looks like a calm and reasonable person, um, and the interviewer looks like a madman. Um, so, and if the interviewer is not precise enough in his questions, the interviewee wins again because the interviewer doesn't the interviewer does too much talking while the politician sits there in innocent silence. So uh, what I'm saying is that the politicians, or not always politicians, it could be anyone, like leaders of you know, corporations or whatever, manage to use certain social conventions to avoid questions. So if they basically talk on the same subject, but without directly responding to the question, the interviewer is then forced to kind of rudely force them to say certain things or rudely f uh, insist that they answer the question. And it just makes the interviewer look bad. Um, the best politicians manage to make it very hard for the interviewer to put them on the spot. 
They use techniques to distract the conversation away from the tough questions. They don't get emotional. They manage to come across as reasonable, modest, ordinary people. Likeability is vital to a politician's career nowadays. We tend to vote for people who we like, rather than thinking purely of their policy, which is a terrible symptom of our image-driven culture, I think. So, clever politicians are able to construct a kind of likeable image as family-oriented, hard-working, sympathetic, strong, or even humorous. And that likability acts as a kind of defence mechanism or even a distraction so that viewers on TV let them avoid questions and so on. Research has shown, and I refer here to a Harvard business paper uh, called Conversational Blindness, Answering the Wrong Question in the Right Way, um, Todd Rogers, uh, Michael I. Norton, that's who it was written by, and the publisher is Harvard Business School, um, and according to this paper, um, we just don't notice that a politician has avoided a question when the answer is related to the question asked and is given with confidence and conviction. So it kind of goes like this. The interviewer asks a question. The politician responds with an answer that relates to the topic of the question but doesn't really answer the question specifically. We don't notice that the question is being avoided because the answer is still on topic. Politicians also use phrases like, let's be clear and look as a way to redirect the answer towards their point while making it look like they're clarifying and directly answering the question, but actually not. So the, the interviewer asks a question, you know, yes or no, did you lie? And the politician says, look, let's be absolutely clear about this, and then proceeds to be completely ambiguous and avoids the question. So this all breaks down, I mean, sort of uh, conversational conventions in interviews can break down when um, tough interviewers manage to put politicians on the spot, it requires a really clever and really sharp and confident interviewer like Jeremy Clarkson. Not Jeremy. Jeremy Clarkson? He's from Top Gear. No, I mean, Jeremy Paxman um, is an example of a good interviewer because he manages to um, put politicians on the spot. Um, perhaps these interviewers take politicians by surprise. Perhaps they're willing to come across as a bit crazy by repeating the question over and over again. Or perhaps they just manage to keep the courage of their convictions in order to verbally spar with these master debaters. So when interviewers bring, in, bring their A-game, it can be pretty fascinating to watch a politician have a really hard time. It's a bit like car crash TV. It's also pretty bizarre. These kinds of conversations rarely happen in normal situations people talking over each other without stopping, people answering direct questions with a completely unrelated answer. It's pretty weird. Let's have a listen to a classic example. Again, this is uh, Jeremy Paxman. In, in this case, he's talking to um, the former Home Secretary of the Conservative Party called Michael Howard. And this is perhaps one of the most famous examples of politicians sort of dodging questions. This is the situation in which Paxman... Um, asked Michael Howard about something that he'd done. The situation was that um, Paxman here is asking Michael Howard about whether he had um, told the head of the prison service um, to dismiss someone. In a way, it's not really important what the story is. Ultimately, okay, you've got the... Um, 
the the manager or the head of Parkhurst Prison, and then you've got the politician responsible for all the prisons in the UK, and then you have Michael Howard, the Home Secretary, who's responsible for all these domestic matters. And apparently, Howard is not allowed to tell the 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 head of the prison service what to do. It's a, it, it's um, beyond his powers, let's say. Um, but the suggestion is that he did that. He overruled the head of the prison service in suggesting that um, the manager or head of, of Parkhurst Prison should be fired. That's kind of not that important, really. The main thing is that we want to just listen to the way in which he manages to repeatedly avoid the question. And I think Jeremy Paxson manages to ask this question something like 14 times. Let's have a listen. We're just cutting into the middle of this interview now. Um, and we see Howard uh, denying the fact that he'd overruled the head of the prison service in dismissing uh, the head of Parkhurst Prison. Derek Lewis says, Howard had certainly told me that the governor of Parkhurst should be suspended and had threatened to overrule me. Are you saying Mr Lewis is lying? I have given a full account of this and the position is what I told the House of Commons. And let me tell you what the position is. So you are saying that Mr Lewis lied? Let me tell you exactly what the position is. I was entitled to be consulted. Yes. And I was consulted. I was entitled to express an opinion. I did express an opinion. I was not entitled to instruct Derek Lewis what to do, and I did not instruct him what to well, do. And, and you will understand and recall that Mr. Marriott was not suspended. He was moved, and Derek Lewis told the Select Committee of the House of Commons that it was his opinion, Derek Lewis's opinion, that he should be moved immediately. That right. is what happened. Mr. Lewis says. I, that is Mr. Lewis, told him what we had decided about Marriott and why he, that is you, exploded. Simply moving the governor was politically unpalatable. It sounded indecisive. It would be seen as a fudge. If I did not change my mind and suspend Marriott, he would have to consider overruling me. Mr. Marriott... You can't both be right. Mr. Marriott was not suspended. I was entitled to express my views. I was entitled to be consulted. Did you threaten to overrule I, I was not entitled to instruct Derek Lewis, and I did not instruct him. And did the you truth threaten of, to overrule the, him? The truth of the matter is that Mr. Marriott was not suspended. Did you I threaten did not, to overrule him? I did not overrule Derek did Lewis. Did you threaten to overrule him? I took advice on what I could or could not did do. Did you threaten to I overrule him, Mr. Howard? I scrupulously in accordance with that advice. I did not overrule Derek Lewis. Did you Lewis. threaten to overrule him? Mr. Marriott him? was not suspended. Did you threaten to overrule him? I have accounted for my decision to dismiss Derek Lewis Did you threaten in to overrule him? detail before the House of Commons. I note you're not answering the question whether you threatened well, to the, overrule him. The, the important aspect of this, which it's very clear to bear in mind... I'm sorry, I'm going to be frightfully this. rude, but... Yes, you but can... I, I'm sorry. It's you, a quite you can straight put, yes you can or no... Question and I will yes give, no give you an Did answer. Did you threaten to overrule him? I discussed this matter with Derek Lewis. I gave him the benefit of my opinion. I gave him the benefit of my opinion in strong language. But I did not instruct him because I was not uh, entitled to instruct him. I was entitled to express my opinion and that is what I did. With respect, that is not answering the question of whether you threatened to overrule him. It's dealing with the relevant point, which is what I was entitled to do and what I was not entitled to do. And I have dealt with this in detail before the House of Commons and before the Select Committee. But with respect, you haven't asked the question whether you threatened to overrule him. Well, you see, 
The question is, what was I entitled to do and what was I not entitled to do? I was not entitled to instruct him and I did not do that. Right. Uh, we'll, leave, we'll leave that aspect there. And okay, so there you go. I think actually Michael Howard is, is, is very good at dealing with the, the, the question there. I mean, he's an expert, really, in his ability to avoid that question. I mean, it's incredible. And in a way, I feel like Michael Howard sort of won that, that conflict there. Um, and that Jeremy, Jeremy Paxman was just forced to repeat the question again and again and again. I think Michael Howard clearly is a very sort of uh, clever politician. Whether you whether you feel cynical about um, Michael Howard and, and the fact that he was clearly dodging the question or not, from a sort of purely um, from a, a communication skills point of view or a debating skills point of view, Michael Howard's a bit of an expert, isn't he? Some politicians are not quite as good at doing that. We're now going to listen to another fairly famous video from YouTube, and this is Jeremy Paxman again, this time um, questioning Chloe Smith, who at the time was the Treasury Minister. Uh, if you're the Minister of the Treasury, it means that you're responsible for overseeing um, like uh, financial matters and, and so on. Um, and um, Chloe Smith, I think, was not the right person for this interview. They should have brought in the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the guy who's basically responsible for Britain's finances, George Osborne. But George Osborne probably just didn't want to face Jeremy Paxman, so he sent Chloe Smith in there like a lamb to the slaughter. And um, you can clearly see from the very beginning that she's, A, completely avoiding Jeremy's first question, which is, when was the decision made? And that, B, she's not very good at doing it. She's got a line that she's trying to pursue, and she's, um, she's not doing it very well and this actually is a complete disaster for her it was a total car crash it was it's almost uncomfortable to listen to let's have a let's have a little listen that is here with us when were you told of this change of plan well as a minister in the treasury and indeed dealing with uh, fuel matters this has been under consideration for some time when and was the decision taken as I say, it's been under consideration for some time. The Chancellor the and the Prime Minister yes, of course. So take when... these decisions between them. Okay, so when were you told then? I've been involved in this for some time. and But the... you didn't take the decision, obviously. You've just said the, the Chancellor, Chancellor and the Prime Minister. Indeed. So when were you told? We had a uh, collective discussion of that uh, uh, in due course, and although I can't, you know, give you the sort of full well, gory did, details did it of the today? processes, I can't, I can't, I can't sit here you and tell remember? you the ins and the outs. No, I'm, it's not appropriate for me to tell you the ins and the well, outs. Why isn't it appropriate? You're here. You're coming here to defend a change of policy, and you can't even tell me when you were told what the change of policy was. Because, as a Minister in the Treasury, I've been involved in the discussions for some time. As I've no. said to you, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister take those decisions. Well, I'm not going to be able to give you a running commentary on exactly who I'm said... I'm not asking for a running commentary. I'm asking for a statement of facts about when you were told. You were told sometime today, clearly. Was it before lunch or after lunch? I'm not going to give you a commentary on who says what and when. That's well, about how good I just want to know when you were scenes. told. I'm not even going to ask you who told you, but when were you told what the change of policy was? This has been under discussion for some weeks. Right. Uh, and at some point during those several weeks, they communicated to you that there had been a decision to change the policy. Indeed. And yes. today, in front of right. Parliament, we, we, we uh, revealed to uh, Parliament, as is right and proper, by right. the way, to Parliament, so, that we were planning to help households and businesses in this way. Is it hard for you to defend a policy you don't agree with? 
It's not, it's not that, I'm afraid, Jeremy. Nice question. Mm. I do agree with it. I think you, it is very important well, to help households and businesses. You didn't in May. Go on. All right. In May, you said... It is not certain that cutting fuel duty would have a positive effect on families or businesses. So what's happened? I think the point to be made out of that, and out of what's then been said today, is that it's important to do what you think you can to help households and yeah. businesses. In a world that we're facing, and I think your intro mm. pulled some of these themes out, in the world that we're facing where things are very hard mm. for households and businesses, you have to do what you can, and you have to do that in good faith, but, so that they can get the help they need at these but, hard times. But, but you said it wasn't certain that cutting fuel duty would have a positive effect on families or businesses. That was on the 23rd of May. Now, what's happened between the 23rd of May and today, which is what, the 25th of June? Jeremy, I don't think many things are certain in this world. I think, I think the point is, well, on, on that, for example, there are a lot of uncertainties families here. or businesses could even save the money they kept from, uh, uh, you know, right. less on fuel duty. There are lots of different ways that could well, pan out for families and businesses. Why did the Transport Secretary know about it yesterday? It's important that the government... <coughs> Excuse me. It's very important that the government uh, acts on concerns of his, and as I, as I said about who, about who, what, and when. You know, the government will make its policy, and importantly, isn't, comes isn't, to isn't the, with it. Isn't the cost of petrol in people's cars a matter of legitimate interest to the transport secretary, who didn't know yesterday? Of course, it is. It's a matter of legitimate interest to households and businesses. But of course, as you know, mm. taxes for the chancellor. Okay, it just goes on and on and on. The poor girl is just being completely crucified by uh, Jeremy Paxman. There, um, we're going to turn now to comedy again, and uh, we're going to listen to a clip from a show called The Thick of It, which is another political satire. And in this show, we follow uh, the uh, communications or public relations department. Um, no, we we follow. Basically, the um, PR uh, or communications head of, I think it's the Labour Party. It could be, to be honest, it could be the Labour Party or the um, uh, or the Conservative Party. But we're looking from the inside. We're looking at the um, uh, the way in which uh, politicians manage their image in the media. And so this show is a bit like a kind of um, a fly-on-the-wall documentary. It's like we are following these people around and observing their working lives. And we see uh, a member of Parliament called Ben Swain, and he's going to go on Newsnight. He's going to be interviewed by Jeremy Paxman. And his um, communications experts are trying to prepare him for his interview. Okay? And so um, they're talking about... uh, how he's going to have to deal with Paxman. Ben Swain is a bit uh, casual. He's like, oh, it's no problem. We've, we've got the cheat codes with Paxman now. We know how to deal with him. But then his communications guys um, are not convinced and they run through a simulation of a Jeremy Paxman interview with him. Um, let's listen to that now. Actually, one of the actors in this scene is um, the guy who plays Doctor Who now, Peter Capaldi. Uh, but for me, he was brilliant in this show as the extremely rude um uh communications what what was his job head of communications for the government um anyway let's listen to him and his uh his colleague preparing ben swain for his interview with jeremy paxman there is some rude language in this clip mr swain jeremy good morning ben morning malcolm off you to fuck Right, Ben, heard the big news about Paxil. Oh. Right. What was it you did in your gap year again? Um, 
Mount Interrailing, Mountain Kibbutz. Did you ever travel like 100 miles per hour head first through a tunnel full of pig shit? Because that's what's going to happen to you tonight with Paxman, unless, unless you listen to us. He will eat you up, sick you out, and grout his fucking wet room with you. Yeah, I have been interviewed on television before, thank you very much. Who? George Allegar. Yeah, do you know what they call him? Easy George. This is Paxo. What are you going to do? when he pulls that big rubbery horse face of mock incredulity at you. Yeah, look, we know the cheat codes for Paxman now, don't we? That old aggressive style of his is just old school. All you need to do is you play the honest, the honest Joe just trying to humbly get your point across. Right, let's, let's, let's see you do your stuff, Mr. Television. Huh? Uh, immigration is in disarray. Now what are you going to do about it? Well, first of all, I would have to take issue with your contention that immigration is in oh, disarray. Oh, that's a question, you fat fuck. Already. He's not going to swear on me like that is he on live television. I mean, it just look ridiculous. What are you going to say when he brings up the computer fucker? Because I mean, you're going to need something. There's, uh, there's an idea of Ollie's we can use. Um, yeah? A week at the coalface. What I'll do, I actually go down into the um, immigration office, spend a couple of days there working on the front line with the other people in the That's office. That's my fucking idea! Sorry. It was. I said that, that you should do that at a, a drop-in centre. Well, I, uh, you know, I did sort of finesse it a bit. Well, just let's just use it, all right? Mm. Jamie's going to stay with you, okay? He'll be by your side until the interview's over, even if you take a dump. Even if I take a dump, eh? And I shit a lot It's uh, smoking and a fast metabolism. Well, fantastic. We'll spend the day defecating together. It's the glamour of this job that I so much enjoy. Feet, please. Okay. Now, I'm, I imagine that you didn't understand any of that. But uh, that's fine. I thought I'd play it to you anyway. It's rather difficult to understand because they speak very quickly in Scottish accents and uh, it's very natural. And so you're not supposed to be able to pick up on every single word. Uh, ultimately, um, uh, Ben Swain is confident that he's going to be able to deal with Paxman. Um, and they simulate an interview with him and he starts answering a question. And one of the guys goes, oh, answer the question, you fat fuck which is like it's startlingly rude. Um, but it would be funny if uh, Jeremy Paxman actually did say that. Then in the show, we see the genuine interview between Ben Swain and um, Jeremy Paxman, which is kind of a, a fake one because they've just used footage of Jeremy Paxman interviewing other people. But they put it together. It's quite cleverly done. Let's have a listen to that interview uh, now, shall we? Let's start with the minister then. Um on a scale which runs from absolute clarity through to not the faintest idea, where do you stand on the number of illegal immigrants in this country? Uh, well, that's, uh, yes, I'm sure you'd like me to... Well, I'd like to answer that question, Jeremy, and I'm sure you'd like to rush me into an answer. But, of course, uh, as, well, the, the question is much more complex, of course, than, uh, than your question supposes. The question invited a numerical answer. Yeah. Do you have a numerical answer or not? Uh, yeah, well... Um, yes, it, it, it's a question uh, less so much of, of the numeracy. One must uh, admit that immigration is, of course, a key factor in modern society. So, so you don't know? Well, not, not having an answer is not the same as not knowing. So well, you don't know, do you? Well, no, I mean, what, what I'm saying is that the, the facts that I do or don't have at my disposal uh, at the moment or, or, what I, uh, or what I do think is not really what, what the question is about. Um, what I'm, I'm very keen to, 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 to point up and, and to flag up here is the level of, of investment that the, uh, the, the government is committed to pumping into an entire overhaul of the immigration database. And you're admitting that your approach last time round was wrong? Uh, no, the, the, the um, uh, previous overhaul of the database, which was in, in 2001, 
and that sorry not the subsequent overhaul of that after the after the Duncalf inquiry that was a, a, a slightly separate overhaul um, well if you'll uh, uh, just let me finish there now, th this is going to be a root and branch overhaul very much of the of the of the of the uh, system because uh, again the, the, the as I say the, the, the previous overhaul was appropriate to that for the minister whose name I um, uh, escapes me now but yes it will be it will be appropriate to that so I, I'm not sure I've understood this uh, properly uh, you are saying that although the policy now is completely different to the policy last time. There is, in that change of policy, no admission of a mistake. Yes, no, 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 no. I mean, no, there is no, there is no change in policy uh, at all. This is, I mean, what this is is an, in, uh, an enormous investment potential. We, we are committing uh, over eight percent of the of the department's budget towards this. So, so I think that that, that clearly shows. We why need to get all the big more money on it. Well, I'm sure you would love me to sit here, Jeremy, and uh, and um, and pledge millions of pounds to uh, to. Um, Yes, so, but, but as we both know, obviously, you know, this is immigration is a is a is a complex issue. All right, so I think we're nearly finished here. Um, let's see. Why do interviewers in the UK have such a direct style? I think it's because we believe that they should be that politicians and other public figures should be accountable for everything that they do. We don't have much deference for people in positions of power, and the Queen is not really, you know, a person in a position of power actually. If she did exercise genuine power over us, we wouldn't have the same level of respect for her, I can assure you. Um, and so this interviewing style is a way to prevent politicians avoiding questions, even though politicians have become very, very good at doing exactly that. Um, it's probably the understanding that if you're too soft on people, um, then they will just use the interview for their own purposes. Also, I think that audiences in the UK, and I'm sure it's the same in many other places, believe that these people should be given a tough time, especially the ones who uh, are not really serving us well or who are privileged in some way. If an interviewer is too soft on a politician, then we feel that they'll just get away with murder. Sometimes it seems to me that interviewers have actually got into the habit of being tough in interviews, and sometimes they do it uh, when it's not even appropriate or necessary. Um, I've played you this clip on the podcast before once, but I'm going to play it to you again. This is an example of how um, a politician might use that aggressive uh, interviewing style when it's actually not really appropriate. Um, here we hear uh, a... Did I say a politician? No, I meant when interviewers use an aggressive style when it's not really very appropriate. Um, here's an example from the day-to-day -day again um, of uh, an interviewer giving an aggressive interview to a woman who's just raised some money for charity. Tomorrow sees the opening of the London Jam Festival, selling pots of jam, some made by celebrities, to raise money for the homeless. With me is one of the organisers, Janet Breen. Janet, thanks for joining us this evening. This must have taken a heck of a lot of organising. Yes, well, it has, actually, to get all the uh, celebrities to contribute their jam. It's really been quite, a, quite an operation. How much of your time did you put into it? Oh, I would say at least six months. Six months? To raise money for a jam festival? Isn't that rather stupid? No, I don't think so. I mean, it's all in a good cause. Well, it's a for good the cause, homeless. yeah, but how much are you going to raise? Well, uh, we hope to raise um, at least £1,500. £1,500? That's a pathetic amount of money. You can raise more money by auctioning dogs. Well, I don't think so. I, I, I think it's all in a good cause and very worthwhile. And worth you persuaded these celebrities to waste their time donating to it? Yes. Well, who? Uh, uh, Glenis Kinnick we've got and Sebastian Coe. I hate Sebastian Coe. Well, uh, 
I feel he's made a very worthwhile contribution. What, actually. to the paltry sum of £1,500? Yes. Is that worth six months of your time? Well, I think it is worth I don't think it is at all. I think the only reason you've done it is to make yourself look important. How dare you come on this programme and say, hey, look at me, I'm raising £1,500 for the homeless. You could raise more money by sitting outside a tube station with a hat on the ground, even if you were twice as ugly as you are, which is very ugly indeed. <gasps> This has been very upsetting for you. <laughs> but have you anything else to say in your defence? <laughs> Janet Green, thank you. Janet Green, thank you. So, for me, this is, I mean, it's a little bit cruel, but basically, I, f I find this funny on two levels. On one hand, it parodies the aggressive style of BBC journalists, especially Jeremy Paxman, but it's also poking fun at people who do charity work just so they can make themselves look good. Obviously, it's important to do charity work, but sometimes you get the feeling that, that people are doing it just to raise their own profile. Okay, that's the end of this episode in which we've been looking at the ways in which politicians uh, deal with aggressive uh, questioning uh, by interviewers. Um, I hope that you're still alive here at the end of this episode and that you haven't been bored to death by politics. I'm sure that some of you out there are thinking, oh, well, I don't normally like politics, but I listened to all the way to the end of this. Well done. Congratulations. Give yourself a slap on the back. Um, some of you out there are probably thinking, oh, I, rather f I found that to be rather interesting, actually, Luke. Thank you very much for taking the time to do an episode on this topic, which uh, you don't ta often talk about. Um, whatever you thought, whatever, however you felt during the episode, do leave a comment and tell us what you think of the way in which politicians communicate through the media in your country. Um, what do you think? What about the journalists? How do they deal with politicians? What's the situation where you are? We'd like to know. Leave your comments at teacherluke.co.uk. Find the page for this episode. It should be called Politicians Avoiding Questions. Thanks very much for listening. There'll be another episode available to you online very, very soon. But for now, it's just time for me to say goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this episode of Luke's English Podcast, consider signing up for Luke's English Podcast Premium. You'll get regular premium episodes with stories, vocabulary, grammar and pronunciation teaching from me and the usual moments of humour and fun. Plus, with your subscription, you will be directly supporting my work and making this whole podcast project possible. For more information about Luke's English Podcast Premium, go to teacherluke.co.uk slash premium info.